Hey there, it's Jonathan Capehart, and you're listening to Cape Up. James Kirchick's brand new book is titled The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. We get into some of the themes of the book, including the rightward lurch of Europeans and their governments and the rise of anti-Semitism. But you can't talk about the continent and foreign policy in general without talking about President Trump in particular. But it's still a little unnerving that so much of our foreign policy is going to be dependent upon the whims of a man who has no core whatsoever. What does this mean for NATO, for containing Russia, for emerging democracies like Estonia? You can find out right now. Jamie Kirchick, thank you very much for being on the podcast Thank you today. for having me. So we were both at the German Marshall Fund's Brussels Forum in March. And as you know, I interviewed Estonian President Kersti Kaliulite. I can say it with very ease good. now. And, and I asked her if she were afraid of Russia. And she said, no, I'm not afraid. I trust NATO. Mm-hmm. And in your book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age, you write extensively on Estonia. Do you believe her? Is she right to be so confident in NATO. I understand the position of the president of Estonia has to say that, and I hope she's right. I'm not sure if I'm so optimistic um, for two reasons. One is her fellow Europeans. If you look at polls that have been conducted that show majorities of Europeans do not support Article 5 of the NATO charter, which says that an attack on one member is an attack on all. So there was a poll done and it showed that majorities in Germany, France, and Italy all opposed uh, militarily defending an ally who was attacked by Russia. That's a poll. So it could be, you know, if something, God forbid, something happens, you, you would hope that in the heat of the moment, you know, things would change. But still, it's not, it's not good. Right. But it has been invoked one time. Yes. And as Wendy Sherman said on the podcast, that one time was September 11th. And I, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I shouldn't be talking about Donald Trump so early into this podcast, but here we are. But what angered me so much when he said NATO was obsolete was that the one time that NATO's defense, collective defense clause was ever invoked was in defense of the United States after 9-11, which was a terrorist attack, which also contradicts his point that you know NATO doesn't do anything about terrorism right. until he started asking them to. And so that's the part two when you ask about you know NATO and, and Russia and Estonia is that you know there are there are um, I mean let's not forget it was Newt Gingrich during the Republican convention who specifically named Estonia and said Estonia is, is a suburb of St. Petersburg and why should we go to war? Why should we go to nuclear war over this suburb of St. Petersburg? Newt Gingrich said that who by the way when he was Speaker of the House in the 1990s was one of the foremost advocates for NATO expansion bringing these countries into NATO and then all of a sudden you know 20 years later he's now saying that we shouldn't be defending our NATO allies. Okay. So that's very, yeah. Okay, hold up. Wait a minute. I didn't know this yeah, yeah, about yeah. Newt Gingrich. Yeah. I wish I had because I would have asked um, President Calulite about that. Yes. That's really, in. if yes. you were president of Estonia, yeah, you'd probably be like, holy smokes. Yeah, like everyone has their moment during the presidential election that just upset them the most. You know, and for, most pe- <laughs> for, in, for, for most people, it was like it was the, Holly, the Access Hollywood tape or it was... Trump, you know, talking about Mexicans. For me, because I care so much about Estonia, I've been there many times, it was the Estonia comments that Newt Gingrich made. They just upset me so much because uh, if you know anything about Estonia, it's, it's uh, I mean, they love America. It's such a, an amazing country. They've been such progress in 25 years after coming, you know, out of the Soviet Union. They're, they rank very high on anti-corruption indexes, on freedom of doing business, all these sort of indicators that we associate with the West. Estonia is actually really, really good. And so to hear a, 
you know, a U.S. political leader like that just kind of throw them under the bus. It really, yeah. it really upset me. So n- now hearing you say say that about what Newt Gingrich said, it sort of puts this the piece that you wrote for foreign policy mm. into perspective where like the dateline is 2022 yes. and the Russians roll into this town that's right on the border. It's Russian majority. And folks are like, ho-hum. Yeah. No big no big deal. Right. So my my mind has now exploded over this, what you've just told me about Newt Gingrich, which I should have known. But how do you explain then a guy who you said just moments ago, uh, 20 years ago, was all for NATO expansion, is now saying things that arguably could be called pro-Russian, pro-Putin? Yeah, I think there's two explanations for this. One is the sort of the cold... Um, opportunism. And a lot of Republicans, you know, they saw Donald Trump saying these things, and he was the leader of the party, and they were basically going to go along with it. More disturbing to me has been what I've seen over the past couple of years in researching this book and living in Europe has been the sort of gradual kind of warming to Russia and Putin from the right, which is strange for a lot of people, because when you think of Russia, you think of, you know, communism and the Soviet Union and the left. But over the past, I would say, four or five years, the Russian regime has made a very concerted effort at cultivating the global political right. And it was mostly in Europe. It was Marine Le Pen, and we knew that. That was above board and in the open. Um, and increasingly in Hungary with uh, Viktor Orban, who was an anti-communist liberal in his youth and has now become basically one of the closest allies of Vladimir Putin. And amazingly, even in, in the United States, there has been an increasing sort of sympathy for Russia and Vladimir Putin among Republicans. And it's incredible. I mean, two years ago, I only only came across this a couple weeks ago, but two years ago, the Russians brought over a delegation of the NRA. And you know who was in that delegation? Sheriff Clark from Minnesota. And it just shows you how clever they are, that they would, you know, cultivate one of the most, you know, rock-ribbed Republican constituencies, right, as gun as gun owners in the NRA, and to bring them to Russia and to evangelize on how wonderful you know gun rights are in Russia. It's all bunk, but but uh, this is just an example of what they've been doing. But that has nothing to do with trying to what's the word I'm looking for? Inculcate Russians into the beauties of of the Second Amendment no, of the United no, States. No, 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 it's, it's the a, other way it's around. Foreign, it's all foreign. Uh, yeah, it's all it, foreign directs. Well, yeah. right. It's the way of it's the the way of the Russians to sort of influence influential Americans and have them come back here and sort of soften the ground. Right. And what they're doing right. is is that they are basically setting themselves up as the last defenders of sort of sovereignty, national sovereignty, and traditional values in a world that is becoming increasingly globalized, where supranational institutions like the EU are becoming more influential, and where, you know, there's, there's, there's people are, are, are migrating to new countries, we have more cosmopolitan cities and livelihoods and whatnot, and Russia is trying to make a gamble for being, you know, we are sort of the last redoubt of the nation state in this very unpredictable world of migration and globalization and cosmopolitanism, you can depend on us to, to, to defend the nation state. And I think this is what appeals to a lot of conservatives. Um, and I understand that there are totally legit arguments to be made in favor of you know, sovereignty versus supranational authority, and we can have those debates about how much power should government surrender to, say, the EU or the United Nations and whatnot. But what I think the Russians are doing is really cynical because 
they invade their neighbors and occupy their neighbors. They're not exactly, you know, the highest uh, authority when it comes to respecting national borders and they're meddling in politics all across the Western world. So it's totally cynical on their part. But I can understand where this sort of intellectual current Mm -hmm. is, is coming from. And I think that's what I think Trump and Putin sort of have in similar. And I think why a lot of Trump supporters might be more sympathetic to Putin. In everything that you described, you know, there's there's also this undercurrent of hate yeah. and intolerance that's in, that's involved in all of this. Well, the other element that's interesting too is that Russia and sort of Russian narratives and propaganda instruments are putting out this notion that the Judeo-Christian world is under threat from Islam. Not Islamic terrorism, but sort of Islam, period. Right, the religion as a the whole. Religion of Islam. And so you see, and so this, you know, on one level, there's the argument, well, Russia should be our ally in fighting ISIS in Syria, which we can get into that. That's completely bogus. They're not fighting ISIS. But separately, if you look at like RT and Sputnik, it's just constant stories about, you know, migrants raping people in Europe. And of course, there is a, a shred of truth. There have been incidents, but they completely blow them out of proportion. And so what you've seen in places like Central and Eastern Europe, where you would expect people to be the most skeptical and resistant to Russian political influence because they were occupied by Russia for decades. You've seen leaders like, for instance, Viktor Orban, who I just mentioned, is basically repeating a lot of these Russian narratives about Islam and migrants and saying, well, you know what, Russia should be our ally in dealing with the broader sort of uh, civilizational struggle against Islam. And lots of Central and Eastern European, you know, Christian conservatives, people who may have spent, you know, time in prison during the Soviet era, are now basically in alignment with this Russian narrative that that Russia should be the ally of the Western world against um, Islamic countries, basically. So we got to talk, we we brought up his name, uh, President Trump, um, and we're talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now let's talk about them together. In a speech at Brookings, you said Russia is destabilizing Europe, quote, on every front. And then in a recent book talk in Europe, you said that in Donald Trump, we have the kind of, and I'm paraphrasing here, we have the kind of leader Vladimir Putin would want to see. Yes. Can Europe survive this? And can democracy survive this? Um, It's going to be very difficult because we've never had an American president who, at least by his rhetoric, is anti-European. I mean, every American president since Harry Truman to Barack Obama, to different degrees, but they all supported a politically integrated Europe that was bound to the United States through trade and by shared democratic values and by NATO. And now we have a president who seems at best apathetic, if not actively hostile to the two most critical institutions that have kept Europe together and, and free and secure since 1945, which is, which is NATO and the EU. He supported Brexit. He's called for, Bre- for more Brexits. And you know, his rhetoric on NATO has been completely devoid of any understanding of why NATO is good for the United States. He only sees NATO as a piggy bank. And if the piggy bank is full, then it's okay. But that's not what NATO's about. NATO is NATO. I, I would even make the argument that let's just say hypothetically, if no European countries were spending anything on their defense and it was solely the U.S., it would still be worth it because you can't put a price tag on peace and security in Europe because we know what the alternative is. It's it's incredibly horrific. Um, you know. So while it's good to see now that President Trump doesn't think NATO is obsolete, I would like to see at least an expression that uh, NATO is good for us. Period regardless of the monetary value, and um, yeah. Even though President Trump said, I used to think NATO is obsolete, now I don't think it's obsolete. Do you believe him? No, no. 
But I'm torn. I don't know if he's an ideologue like Bannon, who really is an ideologue, or if he's just solely kind of a narcissist and he'll just say whatever it is that's required to kind of come on. Come I think on. you and know then, the answer to I that think it's question. A bit, I think it's a bit of both, though. Oh. I think he's I think he's an ideologue on some things. I think actually, when it comes to foreign policy, that is actually the realm where he's probably the most ideological. The other stuff, like healthcare and the economy and mm-hmm. infrastructure spending, I don't think he has any views. But actually, if you look and you go back forty, I mean, thirty-five years, he's been harping on uh, trade, and he's a and he's and he's a protectionist on trade, and in the broader sort of international system. He thinks is is screwing over America, whereas I would say the international system, for all its faults, has been great for America. It's allowed mm-hmm. us to be a superpower for seventy five years. And why would you throw that away? Um, so on the uh, on these things, I'm I'm quite worried. But yeah, on on the NATO stuff, I honestly think he sits down with someone, they talk to him for fifteen minutes, they charm him, and he changes his mind. Yeah. You look at the Syria intervention. I mean, this is probably the biggest shift that he's made in his presidency. Because it's been, he's been very consistent about this. He was attacking Barack Obama in 2013, saying, right. don't go into don't Syria, do it. don't do this. And then it's like he sees photos of gassed babies, which, by the way, there have been lots of photos of gassed babies <laughs> for in Syria for years. Maybe it really was Ivanka sitting him down and saying, look, Dad, like, this is horrible. You're president now. You're not just a guy on Twitter. you got to do something. Which, you know, I, I supported the strike in Syria and in isolation, but it's still a little unnerving that so much of our foreign policy is going to be dependent upon the whims of a man who has no core whatsoever. And that's why when you ask about you know the future of Europe, it's like the worst case scenario is really bad, and I wrote about it in this foreign policy piece. But you know he has surrounded himself with some very good advisors who, like James Mattis and H.R. McMaster, particularly on the foreign policy and, and security realms, people who really understand the importance of Europe and who are traditional, you know, who could have served in Hillary Clinton's administration or they could have served in mm-hmm. Jeb Bush's administration. And if those people are able to shape the policy and shape his his view of things, then we could get a better scenario. And democracy? Can <laughs> democracy survive? In America? I actually, I'm much less concerned about democracy dying in darkness in the United States because we have institutions and we have a free press and we have a very active opposition in this country who will go out in the streets. There's a civil society. I mean, he can corrode our institutions, absolutely. But I'm actually a lot less worried about America than I am the world, Mm -hmm. because there's no global equivalent of the Supreme Court that can say, no, you can't do this. There's no global equivalent of the U.S. Congress that can veto a bill. I'm sorry, the U.N. General Assembly is not going to restrain Donald Trump. So the president can do a lot of bad things internationally. He can also not do things that are very destructive. We just talked about Estonia. He cannot enforce Article 5 of NATO. He could just sit there and do nothing. And that's really destructive. So he can, by his actions and his his inactions globally, he can cause a lot of damage. And just in your gut, let's say troops were or tanks were to roll over into Estonia. Your gut tells you right now if that were to happen, what do you think President Trump would do? I actually think you would. I think Mattis would sit him down and McMaster would sit him down, and they would tell him, look, this is basically the future of the European security architecture is at stake, and we can't allow this to stand. And I, th- I think he would be persuaded, actually. Mm-hmm. So, again, the title of your book is The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. If I'm not mistaken, one of the sort of harbingers of this coming of the Dark Age is the rise of anti-Semitism mm. in Europe. And talk about that, because I think in your book you write about how the rise of it 
is truly, truly disturbing in ways that you haven't seen in a while. Yeah, well, I mean, anti-Semitism is Europe's deadliest tr- uh, tradition, and it manifests in various ways. I mean, there's the traditional kind of far-right anti-Semitism that we're most familiar with, and you see that in a place like Hungary, where the right-wing nationalist government is basically rewriting the history of the Holocaust and trying to write out uh, Hungary's complicity in the Holocaust. And there's a whole chapter about a statue about, it's called the, uh, the Memorial to the Victims of the German Occupation, which if you looked at it, you would not know that Hungary was an ally of Germany in World War II, fought alongside them, and, and the Hungarian state was complicit in sending half a million Jews to Auschwitz. So there's that. And then also, let's not forget, you know, Marine Le Pen, who made these remarks, similarly trying to deny French complicity in the Holocaust, which is interesting because she had supposedly sort of de-radicalized the party on this front. She had kind of kosherized it and made it safe for Jews. It was, you know, Muslims that she was going after, and she was different from her father. And now, I think, if you scratch the surface, you see that she's really not all that different. Um, and then there's sort of a, a left-wing anti-Semitism, and I think that's probably most apparent in a place like Britain, where there's been a scandal also with the former mayor of London, Ken Livingston, uh, who for years has made anti-Semitic remarks comparing Israel to Nazi Germany, and um, he's been suspended by the party for a year. So it, you know, it's it's manifesting itself in all sorts of different ways. And I should also, I can't forget, there's there's Muslim anti-Semitism, which is being imported into Europe. And again, if you look at a country like France, uh, there's been a kind of slow trickle or even exodus of Jews out of France over the past five or six years, um, largely due to uh, you know, intercommunal tensions between Jews and Muslims. This is the country that has the biggest Jewish and Muslim population in Europe. Um, and there's been, there's been murderous attacks on Jews. So it's a very difficult question. It's, um, it's hard to be optimistic. Uh, if you visit any sort of Jewish institution in Europe, you will see a heavily armed, guarded uh, building. It looks like a military encampment. And at some point, you have to ask these people, like, do they, you know, can you live like this? Would you rather not just go to Israel or go to Canada or go to the United States where you don't have to live like this? And I was about to ask about the United States and whether you have seen a corresponding rise in anti Semitism in the United States. Yeah. I mean, certainly, definitely tied with the Trump phenomenon, although I'm not sure the extent to which. I don't know how genuinely American it is, because we, as we saw these you know, prank calls that were made into uh, Jewish community centers was made by, an, by some Israeli emotionally disturbed person. I got a lot of anti-Semitic Twitter hate over the last year, but I'm beginning to suspect, and I've talked to people in the tech community who say that it might have actually been Russian trolls who were behind a lot of this. Well, I mean, I mean anti-Semitism and racism and homophobia, whether they come from trolls or right. wherever, is still a problem. Oh, it's a problem, but I just... There was, a, there was a small silver lining when I heard that because at first I thought, oh, my God, there's so many more anti-Semites in America, my own fellow Americans, mm-hmm. than I had assumed. And then when I heard, well, it may have just been a couple of Russian troll factories in St. Petersburg, there was, a, there was a silver lining to that in that sense and that it was part of a directed – perhaps it was part of a directed campaign as opposed to you know, being a legitimate expression of American sentiment. Mm-hmm. So you wrote this piece for Tablet Magazine, which I could not – for the life of me, I was desperately trying to find actually when you wrote this. And I think it was during the cam- – I think mm-hmm. it was during the campaign uh, where you wrote, to those Jews who contemplate making peace with a President Donald Trump – He is the candidate of the mob, and the mob always ends up turning on the Jews. That was written... March, I I think, 20... March of last year? 16. Okay, so before before he secured the nomination, but he was rolling his way to getting the nomination. 
since that was now a year ago, yeah. has your thinking changed on that? I think in the heat of the, I think well, no, I think in the heat of the campaign, all of us were really worried, and I'm still worried about what he means for this country. Yeah, but I haven't seen. You know, it's not like there's any pogroms happening in the United States, and I and I never predicted that. I still think it's too soon to tell. I think any campaign or political movement, I should say, that tries to appeal to the worst aspects of people by appealing to their racial resentment, in this case, or nativism against foreigners, I see that as being uh, a threat, obviously, to all of us, but to Jews in particular. And I think a lot of Jews were complacent about this because we've sort of lulled ourselves into believing that we're white, we're, we're you know, part of... we've. We're like the most successful, you know, minority in the United States, and look at all the Jews in this or that who go to Ivy League schools, and I think that can be seductive, and a little easy to fall for. I don't know. It's too. Mm-hmm. It's 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 too soon to tell. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I wrote down the word seductive because it sort of flows so perfectly into this notion that's out there about Ivanka. Trump yes. and her husband yes. Jared, yes. and yeah, I I am dying to know whether you think it matters that the two people closest to Donald Trump, his daughter and his son-in-law, are Orthodox Jews, right? And does it really make a difference? The John Birch Society, which was this very far-right wing anti-communist organization in the 1950s, they were so radically anti-communist that their leader called uh, Dwight Eisenhower. A communist. And Russell Kirk, who was a famous conservative writer, he said, Ike's not a communist. He's a golfer. (laughs) And I kind of feel the same way about the way in which kind of the left is getting a little hysterical about Trump. Donald Trump is not a fascist. He's a golfer. I think he doesn't have... Literally a golfer. Literally a golfer, who cheats at golf, by the way. (laughs) But I think... And when I say that, I mean, I don't think he has the intellectual patience or or interest to be a fascist. I I think... you know, so when all this stuff was happening with the JCCs being threatened, and we didn't know at the time who it was, and people were wondering, well, you know, Donald Trump must be an anti-Semite because he's not expressing any sympathy whatsoever for the Jewish community. And it's not that he's an anti-Semite. It's that he doesn't care enough about other people to be an anti-Semite. To be an anti-Semite, you have to really be obsessed with Jews, and you think they run everything, and you write angry letters to the Washington Post, and the <laughs> Jews, this, he doesn't, that's not who he is. I think he's such a narcissist that he couldn't be bothered to care. And so I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't think Donald Trump's anti-Semite. Um, there may be people around him who are. I was gonna, I, I was just about to ask you that because <laughs> what about the people around him? I mean, we just saw recently the, the specter of the president's press secretary yeah. saying out loud that's that stupidity. Hitler didn't, didn't gas his own people and then Holocaust centers. And I then, think that's total stupidity. I think it's, I, I forgot who it was that said that you shouldn't mistake maliciousness for just, you know, ignorance and stupidity. I think Sean Spicer has just repeatedly shown himself to be a moron. And I don't, and I don't, and I'm sorry, I just, he's not very well spoken, he's not very articulate, and he just was bumbling and just didn't know how to, when to stop digging, really. I mean, I don't, I don't take offense at what he said. I mean, I'm offended in the sense that he's such an idiot and doesn't know anything, but I'm not offended as a Jew. I don't, I don't think he was... Well, 
Okay, so that's yeah. Sean Spicer. Yeah, yeah. But what about the White House statement? I think that it was, was Holocaust trouble. Remembrance yes. Day, where they don't even Jews. mention Jews. Which was, which was a problem, and that's not limited to him. In fact, last year, Justin Trudeau did the same thing, but Justin Trudeau apologized for it. Mm-hmm. And the difference in, in, in that was a good thing for him to do. Whereas this White House, what do they do? They send out this guy, Seb Gorka, who has a whole— And he's got a whole, whole bunch of weird issues. history back in Hungary— to defend the statement, not including Jews, and to make an argument about it that actually is very reminiscent of some of the stuff I talk about in the book, which is the way in which countries grapple with the Holocaust. A lot of them don't want to talk about the Jewish nature of it because they want to talk about their own suffering at the hands of the Soviets or the Germans or whatnot. They don't want to address the fact that the Holocaust was primarily, but not solely, directed at Jews. And that statement that came out of the White House was just so weird, because for those of us who've lived in this part of the world, Central and Eastern Europe, we're we're used to seeing kind of right-wing nationalists in that part of the world erase uh, the Jewish uh, story from the Holocaust. You don't expect to see it from an American presidential administration. And that was was troubling, absolutely. So um, your book is The End of Europe, but you're actually optimistic. Why? Well, uh, I'm optimistic because there is hope. It's not, it's not all a bad story. And I think um, the last chapter is about Ukraine, and, I, and I've been to Ukraine a bunch of times since the Maidan Revolution. And it's, just, it's inspiring to see people who are not even members of the European Union but who seem to you know, cherish these values more than we do in the West because they actually have to fight for them. And they're still fighting a war. It's three years on. And 10,000 people have died, and their territory has been annexed in the first violent seizure of land uh, since World War II on the European continent. And they're still putting up a fight. And so I think if we're going to you know, find um, sort of a, a rebirth of the European spirit, it'll be in places like Ukraine or Estonia, in, you know, in Central and Eastern Europe, where, where they cherish these things much more deeply than I think we do here. Jamie Kerchick, author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.